by good luck or design or bad luck, either way, you're listening to Which Car Weekly, the podcast about cars until we digress inevitably and then it's not about cars anymore, but hopefully still mildly entertaining. My name is Daniel Gardner and joining me, as always, is the fabulous Andy Enright, uh, Deputy Editor of Wheels Magazine. Welcome back. Hello. There he is. Uh, good to be back. Yes, good to see you. Good to see you via the media of uh, of Zoom. And making their Witch Car Weekly debut, no less, it is Witch Car editor Tim Robson. He's shaking his head. Hello, mate. You, you've got a you've got a short memory. We we've chatted before about sim oh, racing and all yeah, sorts of sorry, stuff. Sorry, that's um that was a different me. That was the other Dan. Yeah, this is right. so this is the first time you've been on the podcast with. Th- this version of Daniel Gardner. Forgive me, Tim Robson. That's right. Returning, returning after our yes, that's right. We did the, we did the sim racing, and you were actually you were racing live. Well, if there's ever an example that you can indeed multitask effectively, that was that was the occasion. Well, unless I was completely forgettable, and hence my uh, you know non-appearance in in previous podcasts. You've erased me from your memory, and that's that's perfectly fine. I'll, I'll little I'll from column A and B. I think <laughs> we'll say there. Um, we're not I still with unitasking, Dan. Yeah, unitasking. What's that, <laughs> gentlemen? This week we have amassed and gathered together to talk about. We're going to revisit. We, we've spoken about best car films before, um, but it's particularly applicable uh, right now because last time you and I chatted, Andy, we were discussing, um, previewing, no less, a new film. Um, that was an homage to a 1970s film called Cité en Rendezvous. My um, excellent. You were quite excited by this, weren't you? I was. Now, I think people listening will be able to tell why you're saying that, Andy, because now the film is out. Grand Rendezvous is out. It's revealed in full, and we watched it. Uh, how to broach the subject. Were we, were all of our. Um, is our excitement and previews justified and warranted or what? Well, I don't know. I don't want to issue too many spoilers, but I did include the words dumpster fire in the um, headline <laughs> of my story on it. Yes, you did. And uh, completely, uh, yes, completely with merit, I believe. Oh, God. It, you... is, it, is, it is truly terrible, isn't it? If you haven't yet read Andy's wonderful review, uh, which you can find on witchcar.com.au, um, please go and read it. It's, I mean, Andy is one of our funniest writers, and this was a, a masterpiece by even your standards. Um, please read it. But anyway, it, for the benefit of those present, what exactly didn't you like about this film, Andy? And you're not allowed to just say everything. Well, the, the whole premise of the film is wrong. Um, the original Rendezvous film was this kind of holy outlaw execution where Claude Lelouch is blaring around Paris in a Mercedes 450 SEL 6.9, driving on the pavement and going the wrong way up one-way streets, all that sort of stuff. And um, and it's there's an air of authenticity about it, despite the fact that uh, he dubbed over Ferrari sounds to make it seem like a Ferrari. <laughs> but aside from that sleight of hand, um, the the driving was real. Um, but now Ferrari have got involved with it, and they're they're doing it as a promo for their new SF90. And you just know that it. It can't be that real. Ferrari can't have their cars leaping over curbs and scattering pigeons around the place yeah. and mowing down innocent bystanders. <laughs> so straight from the outset, you know, this isn't going to be quite like the original. And then there's another fatal flaw on the thing. It's filmed in Monaco um, and you've got a lot of in-car footage from the car. The only in-car footage most people have seen from Monaco 
is from an F1 car. Yeah, indeed. And if yeah. you're driving around in a road car, it's likely that this is going to be the slowest in-car <laughs> footage you've ever seen in your life of Monaco Grand Prix track. Um, you know, fair play. You know, they, they, yeah, they took the opportunity to get on the track when it was closed due to coronavirus, but it's a flawed premise, I feel. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful in that I, I, love, I love irony, and particularly when you find it in film, and particularly when it's kind of accidental irony. When <laughs> the, the first film, the original, was a fake, and yet it seemed the most real, and now they've done it for real, and it seems completely fraudulent and, and impossible. So how could it have been ironic in two separate takes? Like, it's... I find that beautiful and quite wonderful. But now I do have, I don't entirely agree with all of your criticism. Um, the one thing I thought is that it did, it did still look fast. Like there were some wonderful camera angles where they had the camera very low down on the car and it does impart a sense of, of speed. I think probably what helps is if you've ever actually driven or walked around parts of the track and you look at it and you go, even in a road car, that is spectacularly quick. Um, you know, using both sides of the road. The point you made, though, which I think is quite right, is because they mounted the camera on a great arm at the side, he had to miss all of the apexes so he didn't wipe the camera off the side of the car with, with, a, with a barrier. And that was the most frustrating yeah. thing. If you were saying, it's exactly. like one driver, how is he cocking up the track so badly? Yeah, we know Charles Leclerc is an enormous talent and he just looked like the biggest hack. Like, he was missing the apexes by two meters kind of thing so it's yes. not to wipe out this hugely expensive camera <laughs> and you know you got you guys know your specs of the uh, the new ferrari better than i do but since when have they put hybrid tires on a vehicle of that stature all i saw was this sort of whooshing sound of a car and <laughs> that's not the ferrari i know yeah, yeah the we need same. those low rolling resistance rubbers don't we yeah yeah, it was, it was also another of your criticisms, wasn't it, Andy, is it didn't do the sound any justice at all. I mean, that we know for a fact the SF90 sounds glorious, even though it has, you know, electric and turbo intervention all over it. Um, that didn't do it justice either. You could still tell there were still elements. I think that the mistake, the mistake that was made was they tried to do a little bit of the original kind of style. Like they tried to sort of weave in a few raw and kind of gritty elements but they shouldn't have because we all knew they had the resources of Ferrari and the Monaco bloody town council at their disposal. So why didn't they just go all out and make it as good as they possibly could? They just didn't know where they wanted to be. Do we make it a bit shit or do we make it really, really good? And they tried to sort of do everything. Well, I think that was... Yeah, you know, they, they tried to weave in this dreadful story with, with the flower cellar and all that. Oh, sort of what was that and, all about? And, oh, and, God. And Prince, Prince Albert. And uh, it's, it's just you know, cringeworthy. Um, if they'd have just given the car to Leclerc and said, here you go, drive this like an utter bellend for half an hour, it would have made a brilliant movie, wouldn't it? Of, of him just <laughs> skidding this thing around and just bouncing it off the limiter and all that sort of stuff. Speaking of bellend... If he stole the keys and just, just went out and did it without, you know, just got a GoPro and some social yeah. media footage of people walking along the street... Yeah, the ultimate yeah. outlaw movie, as Dan was alluding to. But hang on, is the, is the guy actually called Prince Albert? <laughs> yeah, I believe he is. <laughs> Not pictured. 
But uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's that scene. It's the scene of uh, Leclerc driving him around the track, and they've both got masks on, like road trippers who can no longer bear the smell of their each other's farts. Um, well, your description <laughs> description of a bell end couldn't be any more fitting then, could it, for our dear Prince Albert? Anyway, that digression I was talking about at the start has well and truly happened. Um, there's another thing that I thought was um, was notable about this particular video. And again, I, I think it's one of the only positives I can really add. It reminds me how utterly undrivable that track is. When you see, you know, high performance car doing it and literally 50% of the corners he arrives at, I'm not one of these people, even though I have a racing simulator behind me, I'm not one of those people that spends hours and hours on computer games. And so I don't really know the Monaco track that well. What I know without a shadow of a doubt is that if you tried to get me to drive that in a Fiat 500, I would crash at 50% of the corners because you just can't see where the bloody thing is going. And that is what I thought the film captured really nicely, is those corners that approach out of nowhere and you simply can't drive it by eye. You have to have a map of it drawn on the back of your hand because you, you're going to smash into a, a, an arm cut at some point. That is what I thought it got across really nicely. I like the look of the, the car looked great. Um, and... I, I did like the way that because there were no grandstands down on the harbour front, you see exactly how close the cars are coming to the water down yeah. the front. It's 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 a matter of like four or five meters in places. And uh, yeah, now I that think would cars have, have ended up in a drink before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been an excellent conclusion for the video if it ended up doing a James Bond Lotus Esprit and just diving off of the. Uh, the harbour into the water. That would have been a good conclusion and keep us all happy, I think. What have you got? Or James, Ga uh, James Garner in the uh, in, in Grand Prix, who actually did that uh, back in the day. That was the uh, that fa that fabulous uh, fabulous movie from the UK. James Garner was a famous American F1 driver. Leapt off the pier there at Monaco uh, in an old Lotus, I believe. So there's another movie you can look up and actually uh, see maybe what that could have been like. But to your point, Andy, about being down on the harbour and the beautiful views, uh, the first thing I saw of that actual uh, production was a little bit of social media clip of the car driving away, panning up to sunset. It looked, or sunrise, I should say, looked fantastic. And I thought, holy moly, this is going to be an absolute doozy. When it came out, where was all that great stuff? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I saw the behind the scenes video. And for some reason, Claude Lelouch is dressed up as an A10 warthog pilot. I have no <laughs> idea why. And, and he's, wa he's walking around and he's doing that stereotypical, like making a little rectangle with his fingers and staring no intently through that. it. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Question is then, how could they, could it ever have been done properly? What, what, was the solution how could how could we be sitting here now and saying it was a masterpiece it honored the original um complete success you can't not not with a major company like ferrari behind it there's just too many health and safety implications if a customer was doing it with a ferrari sf90 that they bought maybe they could get away with that sort of nonsense but not not a big company it's it's never yeah. gonna happen Probably CGI would be an, an integral part of it, to be honest. It's, um, yeah, it's a funny one, Andy, with the, the feel of the PR that's coming out of Ferrari lately with the uh, uh, Leclerc drove the one of the Formula One cars out of the gates of Maranello and, and this thing. It just feels, some, I think you might have mentioned that, half-baked. It just doesn't feel like it's a, a, you know, you expect the Italians to be passionate and genuine and, and not to give a flying fig. 
this stuff just feels very holy shit. Well, we've got to get some stuff out and into the ether. We've got nothing going on. Let's just let's just do red rendezvous. That that sounds like a yeah. great idea. Yeah. Do it in an afternoon. Edit it up. Send it out. Uh, Bob's your uncle, and and the result shows exactly. People are sharing it for entirely the wrong reasons. If you're Ferrari, right. aren't they? <laughs> well, uh, well, they say publicity is good. Whether is all good, whether it be good or bad publicity. So what we're saying effectively is it was the wrong location, the wrong driver, the wrong car, the wrong company backing the wrong car, the wrong film to try and do an homage of, made by the wrong director, who was actually the right director because he was the same director. So they got it completely wrong. Yeah. Right, right. They had a a real opportunity and, uh, yeah, they (laughs) they missed an open goal with that one. It is too. If you haven't seen it, do watch the film Grand Rendezvous. It's worth a look, just if for no other reason to understand what not to do when making a car film homage. It's not the worst car film of all time, though, is it, Andy? Because you, when we were discussing these matters previously, pointed me in the direction of a uh, production by Aston Martin. Now tell us about this oh, yes. absolute gem of car cinema. True power should be shared, um, is, is the name of this um, masterpiece. It's already bad. I believe, yes, I believe Aston Martin have taken it down from their own website, but it was preserved <laughs> um, <laughs> for posterity by, by some person who I thank from the bottom of my heart um, and uploaded <laughs> yes. to YouTube. <laughs> um, and Aston Martin uh, released this video uh, to coincide with the launch of the Rapide, the four-door car. And so they thought, what um, better way of uh, you know, extolling the benefits of a four-seater Aston Martin than to sort of cast uh, a quartet of simpering peckerheads who you wish would <laughs> die in a grease fire? Um, it's truly horrendous. It's it's one of those things that you kind of watch through your fingers. Uh, that it is actually a three part series, but I'll, I'll, I'll freely admit I've never got past the first three minute movie. You don't need to. <laughs> it tells you everything you need in that first part. It's it is it is truly truly terrible. Um, the the characters in there, you, you just want to uh, kill them all within seconds. Yes. You? Yes. Absolutely. I- I am totally flummoxed and lost for words on this film um, because, as I was saying to you earlier, Tim, um, the premise and the idea is really good. Like, if you'd nailed it, it would have been a really great film. You know, you you could have made it funny. You could have made it sort of um, a bit sinister. You could have gone any number of ways with it. But what Aston Martin decided to do was just make it crap and not even crap in a good way. You know, like deliberately kind of a bit low budget and a bit sort of, raw no it was just where did they get those actors and were they even actors maybe they just got they had for some reason they had to use aston martin employees who have never ever acted before and have ever watched from the parts counter how could once again it's very difficult because it is so catastrophically bad from start to finish it's very difficult to put your finger on the actual thing they did wrong but i just think once again it's a case of Everything, isn't it? <laughs> Bad acting, yeah, yeah. terrible. It looked like it was it feels like in, in like some wedding function centre. Like it was so <laughs> bad. It actually felt like it was on the back of the uh, the PR event. Like all the journalists, all the dealers had gone home. Yeah, they still had the the venue the venue at the racetrack available. There was a couple of waitresses. 
maybe the guys loading the, you know, sort of bumping out the tables, you know, at, at, into the trucks, like, here's a tuxedo, it looks like it'll fit you, that'll do. Um, but yeah, it, I, it's either gone two ways. It was either one of the, you know, the kids of, of someone who works at Aston Martin had a high school project they needed to film and they had access to a bunch of gear, or they've gone the absolute other way and spent absolute squillions on some you know, cocaine snorting production house with this <laughs> massive value and they've never, they didn't know which end of the camera was which. Um, and as I said to you, Dan, the biggest thing I got out of it was this sort of, you know, very you know, simmering relationship between uh, the, the the main actress and the waitress. It looked like they were <laughs> going to go spend a weekend in, in Saint-Tropez. Like it was like, what is going on? Then the boys are just like, what is going on there? And then the strange, mysterious, you know, chap on the rooftop that she's, what? I mean, Come on, that's a, serious. That's Swiss Beats, um, <laughs> Mr. Alicia Keys. Yeah, he was. A, oh, is that right? He was a yeah, person, pre- a, gen- pre- a genuine actor. Yeah. What? Previously employed and um, paid a great deal of money by <laughs> Danny Bahar as, at Lotus as one of the brand consultants there. So he's like a Say magnet no for shit money. Say no more if you got yeah. Danny Baja involved. Yeah, if you want a terrible, terrible promo, just just go to Swizz Beats. He's your man. <laughs> wow. Swizz Beats, that's unreal. I'm learning uh, so much. I, I, I just love the whole, there's those three guys, and the, you know, f- what's your speciality? Fighting, yeah. driving. <laughs> Weapon specialist and keen harpist. <laughs> you just want to kill him with a shovel, don't you, at that point? It's just, it's just terrible. And then she asks for the check. Check, please. And the waitress goes off. And then they just walk off without paying it. <laughs> how, how did this script ever get anywhere? It's just yep. comedy. Um, I like that they all completely, they were trying to, all the different characters, the four of them with the various specialists that you just said, they're all trying to do a slightly different form of sinister and cool. But yeah. what they all inadvertently did is nailed smug by mistake. Yes. <laughs> just They all just seemed like insufferable twats and just horribly <laughs> and. Just, I, yeah, like you say, you instantly, 30 seconds, you wanted to punch all of them. But of course you wouldn't because they're weapon specialists and fighters. And all that. Why do you need a fighter if you've got a weapon specialist? He must be <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shit, I can't, I can't work this gun. Just punch him on the nose. <laughs> well, at the, at the end of the day, they all had to get into a repeat. So, you know, that was punishment enough, I would suggest. Oh! Yeah, you've been in the back of one of those. <laughs> yeah, ow. Yeah, that was actually, that was one of the other things I found quite funny about the film is they shot them getting into the car from above. So you couldn't see them contorting their knees around behind their heads to fit in. It was brilliant. It was the best thing about the whole film. Oh, sorry, not the best thing, the cleverest thing about it. Oh, so, I'm getting cold sweats now just thinking about that. <laughs> if you um, haven't seen it, true power should be shared. Go to, go to YouTube afterwards, look it up and, yeah. and wince. And you don't need, gonna... as Andy said, you don't need to watch parts two and three. It's all in number one. You just... <laughs> got it all um we're not here to talk exclusively about bad films even though i would be completely okay with that um tim you and i watched a great film recently didn't we this is uh it's only just out um tell us all about it we watched on our, our film date night look at this film almost appeared out of the blue it's called uh, brock over the top uh it's done by a gentleman called uh Kriv stenders bit of an odd name but a bit of a, a well-known uh, character uh, in the Australian movie scene. He's done things like uh, Red Dog, 
Um, interestingly enough, I had a chat with him yesterday about the movie. Uh, I'll touch. I'll touch on that before first before I come back to the movie. He's never done a car movie. He's not actually into cars, and yet he assigned himself the job of doing probably what is one of the most difficult things uh, in, I suppose, in Australian motoring uh, folklore is to document the life of Peter Brock in a way that kind of presents the whole story. Now, uh, Peter passed away 2006, about 14 years ago. Obviously, anyone who's ever touched a steering wheel in Australia knows Peter Brock, even those who don't. He was a, a legendary figure uh, in terms of even Australian culture. Um, for Kruv to take on this story, I think it was... It, as he said, it was probably it probably helped him that he wasn't as as sort of involved, other than watching Bathurst on a, on a, a Sunday uh, in the, on the long weekend as it used to be for for Australian kids. That was his only association with it. But what he pulled off, I think, is a movie for the ages. It it tells the story of Brock from both sides. We know him as Peter Perfect, and uh, you know he, he helped sort of bring in the the point oh five. Uh, blood alcohol thing that was that was his message um fantastic racer nine times Bathurst winner all that kind of stuff but there was the dark clouds uh in the life of Brocky um you know with the with domestic violence sort of allegations that kind of thing so it was always going to be a very difficult story to tell and it's been told poorly in the past it was a tv uh, novella series a couple of years ago that really shit the bed in terms of, of the execution the family was furious it just didn't touch uh, any of the bases but the way that that uh, and his team went about putting this together, um, Dan, you can attest. We sat and we sat there and watched it together, and I wasn't going in with any expectations whatsoever. I thought, oh, okay, this could be a, a bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of a dud, and it certainly wasn't. The way that he put it together, the way he wrote in all of the angles of Peter's life, the people around him, he managed to get conversations with the entire family. Um, with you know, with the people that were his detractors, and all from a fairly neutral voice, um, which which made it sort of even more intriguing. Totally. Okay, totally. so you do see the light and the dark there, then. Very much so, uh, Andy. It's and and it was, and I would you know, comfortably that would be the first time. Like everyone who's a fan of Brocky or not, or maybe not a fan of Brocky, uh, are quite happy to jump on our socials, jump and jump jump onto the site and say, "Oh, Brocky was a life beater," all this kind of stuff. Um, nothing's been proved. My takeaway from the movie is that uh, Kriv managed to bring to this age a, a, a subject that was kind of treated differently back in the day, not correctly, and it was never right, but the way that it was regarded in the 1980s, you know, behind closed doors, you know, nobody spoke of it, that kind of thing, which kind of, I suppose, you know, led to the... Uh, the the putting the lid on it in terms of of, of it coming out yeah. into the into yeah. the public space, um, but he spoke to all of the partners. Uh, he spoke to Bev. He spoke to the you know to the first uh, to to all three women that were involved. I won't I, I, I won't go too far into it because I really recommend that people uh, watch the movie and, and and get their own view. But he spoke with the kids. He's he's really he's done due diligence uh, and done it in a, a I think in a very tasteful, I suppose, maybe not quite the right word, but a respectful way um, that gives everyone the voice that they probably deserve. 100%. It was, um, for me, I thought the the real art form in that story, you know, feature-length documentary, was balance. The way that he balanced, for, for an incredibly broad audience, there was enough car, 
there was enough racing, but not too much so that someone who wasn't really interested or didn't really know much about the racing side would just sit there and tune out because it was too overload. It was wonderful how much balance there was between the personal side, the, you know, the, the, um, the home life, the professional. Um, and as you say, that really difficult subject, both because of, the, you know, a, a person who's since died and now, you know, you sort of want to be respectful of their, that, that is one of the most difficult things you could have ever have breached. And it was so perfectly handled to the point where, you know, if you, if you heard about that side of Brock before, you kind of almost come away feeling guilty for being a fan. Like you almost sort of have, feel like you've done a, the bad thing by, by remembering him for the good he did. What did what this documentary did so well is it, it stopped talking about that and it stopped covering it when it was done enough. You know, it acknowledged it, it wasn't ignoring that it happened, and then we're back onto the bit and the bit we all want to remember. That was what I think was done so perfectly. And the other thing which blew my mind was everyone was in it. Like they hadn't missed out on yes. a single important significant personality in his entire life, pretty much. His Swiss beats there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you who was there, Andy. Um, and it sent a bloody cold shiver right up my spine. A gentleman by the name of Phil Scott, uh, who is a legendary Australian motoring publisher. Yep. Uh, he was one of the founding editors of, uh, of Street Machine, of, of Wheels magazine. Uh, he has done done it all and bought the T-shirt in terms of Australian um, uh, motoring publishing. Uh, he was my publisher back in the day at, well, several things, motor, um, uh, auto action as well. Uh, a fearsome, fearsome guy, uh, an unbelievably talented writer um, and a guy who got to go on a lap with Brocky uh, in a Porsche 956 that he and Larry Perkins raced oh, in, um, wow. at Le Mans. No passenger seat, no harness. Apparently it was a last, like it was a end of a practice session. Um, uh, Brocky just looked over at Phil and said, mate, come on, hop in. We'll just, we'll just go for a fang. Flat out lap, unsecure. Can you imagine in this high-vis world of, of, multiple, uh, of multiple officials every 10 metres that that would actually happen? Oh, wow. Apparently sent a 9,000-word uh, story uh, back to Peter Robinson for publication in Wheels. Peter looked at it and went, Yep, no, we'll run the whole thing, 13 pages. Wow. <laughs> so, oh. so look, yes. Now. Yeah, so look, in terms, of the, in terms of the documentary, it does cover everything. It covers the, the A30, it covers the time at home. Uh, the family were incredibly generous with how they uh, shared uh, home movies and home pictures. Um, it was actually, Kriv was, Kriv was saying that he got a deal with Channel 7, so he, uh, a little bit of it. No, it's not a spoiler, but he didn't have to cut... Um, Cut away from uh, cigarette advertising, that kind of stuff, okay. uh, which has spoiled, which has spoiled other de- documentaries in the past. And interestingly, given it was on a big screen, I mean, we watched it on on Dan's mahusive uh, home stereo uh, home uh, cinema setup. Uh, the quality of the film was brilliant as well. There was stuff that I had certainly never seen. There was industry uh, footage from obviously there's there's you know reams of stuff from his days with Holden. The 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 subject of the split between he and Holden was dealt with very well. Probably not a lot on how he then talked you know, where he sort of dallied with other other manufacturers and that kind of thing. So it, again, it didn't get into that racing minutia. Um, that could have lost uh, the general general audience. He, they, he kept it pretty broad. Um, but one of the other takeaways from me, for me was that he touched on just how big and powerful Holden and Ford were in that sort of 1970s and 1980s, and he could get a sense of just how much money and effort was put into the into the racing side, um, and the color and the color and the movement, and the noise, and the and, and dipping back into that time. 
it was amazing. It was so cool. It Tim, really is, was. Is there um, energy polarizer content? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, they, I mean, so that, again, coming from the coming from the journalist side, I think that was that was pretty key, wasn't it, Dan? Who knew that the energy polarizer didn't work? I mean, I had to watch the film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this seemed perfectly logical to me. You put a crystal in a box with no wires attached to it whatsoever, and suddenly it makes you save fifty percent of the fuel. I'll have to say though, did you? I don't know if you caught it, Dan, but. Heart, so there was you know, really legendary journals all the way through who use this reference and, and uh, Kriv actually told me that they do make very good interviewees. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of fairly neutral, but they're also, they also speak in, in sound bites. Um, but one uh, paper clipping popped up in the corner of one of the shots there, Dan, and uh, it was, I think, had Paul Gover. This really works. As a, as, a, as a published piece. So I wonder if he looked back at that and goes, mm, maybe that wasn't. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, but no. then again, like it's, it's, it's two sides of the story, right? And, and there were definitely uh, people in the media on, on Brock's side and backing that. And then there were other people. It was almost one of those subjects that, I, you know, not being there at the time, although I feel like I'm that old, um, <laughs> there would have been definitely sort of, you know, to and fro um, uh, between both parties fascinating for me to see the the power of Ford and Holden in those days because I, I didn't live here then I, I came over to Australia seven years ago and I remember being thrown in at the deep end with uh unique cars working there and I, I had to write a story on Peter Brock like in my first week on unique cars I'd never heard of the guy you know Peter Brock to me was a guy who developed Cobra cars and um I remember I needed to find a fact out and uh I, I looked over to the editor Guy Allen and uh, about Peter Brock and I said oh shall I ring him and uh, <laughs> Alan just looked, just looked at me, raised an eyebrow, and said, "Well, you can try." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, P Peter Brock was a, a very Australian-centric um, brand of fame, wasn't it? And I, th and I think that's what he, yeah. a, a lot of people loved him for. Yeah, and and it transcended motor racing by a factor of a hundred. Really, it was he was yeah, I suppose because the modern day racing fan is almost uh, sorry the modern day racer is almost in charge of his own fame in a lot of ways with social media and you know if if a, a charles leclerc has a million followers but if uh, if uh, you know sebastian vettel's got two million then he's got more reach but in those days it was the tv uh, channel seven was an enormously powerful vehicle um for the brands to get their message out but for also for racing to be seen um so it was the black hat and the white hat slightly. There was, you know, there was the uh, the Dick Johnson versus versus Peter Brock, and then there was Alan Moffat, who was a bit of the black hat as well. Um, all of these guys, they're all older, but they're all uh, they were all part of the movie. The only person that Kriff said didn't want to be involved was Larry Perkins, and that oh. doesn't surprise me at all because he's an irascible old fellow at the best of times, <laughs> uh, and he just yeah, just didn't want to know about it apparently. Um, when's it out? Uh, July five. It's going to be a. Uh, unfortunately, because of the uh, because of the troubles that we're living in with COVID nineteen, it was uh, due for a wider cinema release. I understand that it will go to a few cinemas, um, but it'll be available across uh, every platform. Interestingly, on Xbox and PlayStation, I was I was uh, I was in, uh, duly informed. Um, but a wide digital release, uh, yeah, very soon. So um, if if I had to give it a uh, you know a, a, a Margaret rating, I'd, I'd definitely give it you know. I would actually say five stars. I'm, I'm very rare to give out a, a five from five, um, wow. but I, I want to watch it again. I really want to watch it again to get the, the nuances. Like we were, we were gobsmacked. We didn't move, did we? For yeah, the absolutely. 105 minutes. 
Totally captivating, yeah. Um, well, there we go, gentlemen. Um, a little bit of the good, the bad, and just the right amount of the ugly. Um, thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you, Tim Robson and the Enrights. Uh, that's it from us for another week. If you want any more awesome motoring content, whichcar.com.au is the place to go, or Facebook at whichcarau, or for all the other socials, it's just at whichcar. My name is Daniel Gardner. Until next time... Stay safe on the roads and let us know what is going on in your motoring world. We always love hearing all about it. We are recording all this and it will all be sent to human resources. <laughs> <laughs> I love you all.